If you haven't been here recently, we're busy doing a series called The Long Story Short, which is basically covering the big story of the Bible, just going through the big story of the Bible. Um, and we are in covenant. We've progressed. Um, we've gone from crisis. Let me see. Uh, uh, I don't know why that's happening over there. Let's see. Yeah, there we go. So we're going from crisis uh, for creation to crisis, and now we are in covenant, the third one. Um, and so last week, just to recap, if you weren't here, we looked at Psalms 32, and we looked at the three major words in the Bible that speak about what sin is, and we came a little bit closer to this idea of how warped and broken we are. We spoke about this idea that blessed is the one whose transgression, whose rebellion, who, who, who is the person that uh, um, actively and willfully goes against God and His kingdom. Transgression is forgiven. God has absorbed this and taken this upon Him whose sin, the missing of the mark, that's what, that what we uh, c- uh, commit to do or not to do um, is covered by the blood of the Lamb. Blessed is the man who against the Lord counts no iniquity, that brokenness in us. God doesn't hold that against us. And we see the love and the mercy and the grace of God. This um, kind of quote summarizes our sermon of last week. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And a lot of people spoke to me after the sermon last week and said, man, we, we got a better glimpse of what sin is, how bad we are and how desperate need we are of a Savior. But yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we had ever dared hoped. And that, that's the gospel. That's the good news, is that you are worse off than what you think you are, but there's a lot more grace than what you can, what you can even imagine to be there. And um, we also have a podcast to remind you of that where we go a, bit, a little bit deeper into that. So we've discussed that this week, so you're more than welcome to join us um, on that. But today we're going to speak about the covenant. Before we start, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come together as your people, and we say thank you, Lord, that we can be here. Thank you for this week that we could have had, whether it went quickly or slowly. Lord, whether it was sunny or it was raining, it doesn't really matter. We know that you were with us every step of the way. Lord, we say thank you that we could congregate together again and enjoy each other's fellowship where we're going to enjoy lunch after this. Lord, thank you that uh, you have blessed us, Um, Lord. Some of us might be struggling with with health, Lord, health issues. We pray for many of our members in our church, uh, Jill Marshall, Karen Billings, Lord, that are struggling, and Diane Rab-Jones, Lord. There's many people that is constantly on our prayer list that we are praying for that we know that are watching at this very moment. Lord, we pray for our young people that's away at Pathfinder Camp, Lord, and the people that's a part of that and, and ministering to them. Lord, we pray for, for us here today that as we uh, investigate more into this big story of the Bible, Lord, that we won't just say, yeah, that's cool, that's a nice story of the Bible, that we can see that this story plays out in our lives today in 2022. That when we open Scripture, Lord, that the same Spirit that inspired Scripture, Lord, will speak to our hearts and our minds, Lord, so that we can apply it in our own lives. So be with us now. Lead and guide us in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. So we're in covenant now. So today, the covenant is an interesting topic because this sermon is kind of out of sync with the story of Scripture. So we've gone, literally just followed the story of Scripture. We started in Genesis chapter 1. We looked at Genesis 1. We looked at Genesis 2. We looked at Genesis 3. We looked at the creation and the crisis, and we kind of went through that. But the covenant is a bit of a out of sync with that in the sense that the covenant is, uh, in many ways, the structure of the whole, it's the backbone of the whole of Scripture, And it goes literally from even before Genesis 
It starts in Genesis and will go on for eternity because it's rooted in this idea of the eternal covenant of the Trinity that is shared with us, this eternal committee of love and peace. And so today, in a sense, will be a, uh, it follows the story because um, the first time that we read explicitly about the covenant is with Noah in Genesis chapter 6, later in, in Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, 15, 16, and 17, and then throughout the whole of Scripture. But in a, in a way, this will be kind of a lecture, not as much a sermon, more a Bible study than me preaching, so that you can kind of start putting the puzzle pieces together because you'll see how the stuff that we'll discuss today, when we get to Jesus and the church and the end of time, there will be, there will be certain things in the covenant that you'll be like, oh, that's what this, this meant. Oh, this is how this fits in. Oh, this is why Jesus is doing this. So if not everything resolves today, if all the puzzle pieces don't fit together, um, and there's some questions just all on. We will answer many of those as we progress. But let's look at the covenant. A covenant is a word that is exceptionally important in our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of who God is, um, and it, it needs to be defined through Scripture, right? So what is the covenant? That's the first question I want to ask. What is the covenant? Well, Mark Jones, uh, discussing the, 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 the idea of covenant in his book, The Covenant, says this, at its most basic level, a covenant is an oath-bound relationship. So it's not merely a contract. It's not like a, a, a contract that you have with a bank. You want to buy a house, you want to buy a car, and you step into a contract. You don't have a relationship with a bank necessarily, right? You pay what you need to pay, and then you go, like, and it's mutually agreed upon. A covenant in the Bible can be sometimes very different to that, especially the, the God and human covenant. But at its most basic level, um, level it's an oath-bound, meaning that there is obedience and responsibility and accountability to it, but there's also a relationship aspect to it between two or more parties. Skip McCarthy, an Adventist uh, theologian that has spent a significant amount of time on this uh, topic, and if you're very interested in this, I can not uh, regard this book even more higher than saying that this is probably one of the best books on the covenant. It's called In Granite or Ingrained, and I would highly encourage you to go and read this book where he goes in depth about the covenant and how it relates to the Sabbath, how it relates to the Old and New Covenant, how it relates to this idea, because we have, unfortunately, have this... Um, kind of dichotomy in Christianity where certain people believe that the Old and New Covenant is two different dispensations, meaning there's an Old Covenant in the, in the Old Testament and there's a New Covenant in the New Testament, and they are not the same thing. But when you start reading the Bible, and that's what we're going to speak about today, is that you'll see that they are actually the same thing, and God's heart has always been towards humanity in the same way. He wants to do the same thing that he did with Moses and the Israelites and with Abraham and with Noah and with David and all of these people that have lived for thousands of years. This thing that God wanted to do with them is what God wants to do with us. It has not changed. The DNA of the covenant is exactly the same Thing. It comes out in different ways in the Bible, but it's exactly the same thing. So it highly encourages. But he writes this. He says, covenants differ in nature, meaning there's in the Bible various different covenants. For instance, David made a covenant with jo Jonathan, right? Or there's certain nations that made covenants with each other. So there's different covenants in the Bible. Some covenants are legal stipulations, either mutually agreed upon, such as a business contract, or unilaterally determined, such as a will. Right? So if you think about a will, when you receive an inheritance, you can't say, well, uh, you know, I want to change the will. No, no, one person chooses what his will is, and you just have to say, yes, I accept. Right? 
So he says, when writing God's covenant, so this is specifically speaking about the covenant that God makes with humanity, the covenant that God makes with us as human beings or with specific individuals. He says, the New Testament authors chose not to use the Greek term for the mutually negotiated agreement, synthica, which means that it's not the we sit with God or Abraham sat with God or Noah sat with God and said, hey God, let's make an agreement. Or God said to them, hey, sit down, let's mutually discuss this covenant. Most of the covenant, all of the covenants are unilateral, where God is the one that stipulates what the covenant is. That's why he says, but rather the one used for a will, diatheke. God's covenant prescribes a divinely initiated, meaning that God is the one that comes and initiates the covenant, grace-based relationship. It's, it's not because we have done anything. It's, it's because of God's grace, un- unmerited favor that we receive, rather than a business contract or even a will, as it aims to direct, direct humanity toward the crown and goal of the whole process of religion, namely union and communion with God. So when we think about covenant, this is the thing that we need to know, that God wants to have communion with us. That's the purpose of the covenant. He wants to say, and this is the most, probably most rudimentary, most basic foundational understanding of the covenant. The covenant is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what God wants. I will be your God and you will be my people. But there's another additional element to this. And then up until this week, actually, I didn't realize how profound it is. But this guy, John Walton, a very, very um, prolific Old Testament scholar, writes it this way. He says, God has a plan in history that is sovereignly executed. The goal of that plan is for him to be in relationship with people. That's exactly what Skip Bacardi said, right? Whom he has created. It would be difficult for people to enter into a relationship with a God whom they do not know. Right? So he's saying God wants to step into this relationship. He's starting a covenant with people, and the, the goal is to know him, relationship. But it's difficult to know somebody that you don't know. So he says this. He says, if his nature were concealed, obscured, or distorted, an honest relationship would be impossible. In order to clear the way for his relationship, then God has undertaken as primary objective a program of self-revelation. He continues. He says he wants people to know him. The mechanism that drives this program is what? Covenant. And the instrument is Israel. And the purpose, is of, uh, the purpose of the covenant is to reveal God. So let's just pause here. I want to get this in your mind as we, because we're going to get to this covenant. But I want you to understand what he's saying here. He's saying that God has a purpose. God has a goal to be known because he wants to be loved. Right? And so God wants to be known. God wants to connect with you. But God is saying, but they don't know me. So he needs to reveal himself. And the way that he reveals himself is saying, I'm going to choose a people. And through them, people are going to know who I am. Through the covenant with Israel, I'm going to use that. I'm going to bless them so that they can be a blessing. And by that blessing, that will draw people to me. Now, we know in the Old Testament, they didn't necessarily stick with this plan. But whether they stuck with this plan or not, God said, I'm going to make myself responsible for the self-revelation so that they can know who I am, revelation, in order that they would love me and know me as their true God, meaning relationship. He says, my contention then is that while the covenant is characteristically redemptive and ultimately soteric, meaning relating to salvation, it is essentially revelatory, meaning God wants to reveal. The covenant is supposed to reveal something. And this speaks to the heart of a very important axiom of life, is that to love and be loved means to know and be known. If God wants to to love and be loved, 
He needs to make sure that we know who he is, and he wants to be known by us, and he wants us to know him. So essentially, the covenant at the end of the day is just God's desire to make you know him. Not on a merely uh, mental level that you have an idea of God, a belief system, but to know him relationally. Right, Tim- Timothy Keller, we spoke about him just a few moments ago. Timothy Keller, in a book on marriage, writes this. He says, to be loved but not, uh, not to be known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not to be loved is our greatest fear, to be rejected, right? But to be fully known and truly loved while a lot a lot like being loved by God. He says that's exactly what it means to be loved by God. God knows completely who you are, and yet He loves you. And in same return, to have a relationship with God is to say, we know who you truly God, we know who you truly are as God, and we want to love you. It is what we need more than anything, is to love and be loved, and for that relationship to flourish. So if we think about covenant, there's a few key words that I want us to keep in our mind. Number one, redemptive. The covenant is redemptive, and you'll see that constantly. One of the major themes in the Bible is this idea of redemption, but it's also relational. It's not a covenant between people that don't know each other. The covenant is different than a contract, and one of the best ways to think about uh, uh, the, the difference between a covenant and a contract is the idea of marriage. You get certain people that get married, but they don't covenant with each other to be with each, with each other forever, Right? If you think about Las Vegas where people get married, just quickly step into a thing, get married, and two days later they annul the marriage. That's not a covenant. That's just a contract that they had, right? Where a true biblical marriage is covenant with each other through sickness and health, through, through everything, good and bad, highs and lows, whatever, you are covenanting to be with that person, right? So it's relational. It's also revelation. God wants to reveal himself through the covenant in some way. And then very closely related to that is this idea of blessings and curses. Right through the Bible, you will read this idea that if you keep, uh, if you're in this covenant with God, there are certain stipulations that you need to do and blessings will follow. If you move away from this, curses will follow. It's a consequence of the same thing, of not following. And then there's an obligation that is given to us that we need to do. So all covenant is bringing this, uh, this dimension of obligation. So, how were the covenants made? Have you ever heard of the phrase, hey, let's cut a deal? Have you ever wondered where that phrase comes from? Hey, let's cut a deal. It comes from the Hebrew word berit, which means to cut, which is the word for covenant. The word covenant literally means to cut. So how they used to make a covenant is that they would take an animal, they would cut the animal in half, and then the two parties would walk through the, the, the animal, and then they would say, if I break this covenant, I make an oath, to say that if I break this covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me. So let's cut a deal, right? And so covenants were very intense. It wasn't just a flippant little uh, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do this, whatever. It is a very serious, solemn oath bound by two people that know each other. Sometimes it's the one is superior than the other one, superior and inferior. Sometimes it's equal. But in the way that God comes to us, it's always the, the superior with the inferior. So now let's quickly run through the biblical covenants. There's six biblical covenants throughout the whole story of the Bible. The first one, does anyone want to venture or guess where the first one starts? Starts right in the beginning with Adam. Now, it isn't, it isn't the first time that we read the word covenant, but it is already implicit in the story of Adam, right? We'll, we'll read there, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, and God blessed them. That's one of the first key things. The idea of covenant is this idea of blessing. 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves over the earth. So now let's think about that. Redemption, revelation, right? Uh, 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 God wanting to reveal himself to them, uh, a relationship. All of these elements are there. Now, redemption is not there yet. We'll see it in Genesis chapter 3. But essentially, we see that God is saying, I'm creating humanity in my image, and I want a relationship with them, and they will be a blessing to the world. They are conduits of my blessing to the world. They will be my image bearers in this world so that when the, the people see humanity, that will be an image of me. So already there's this covenant. Now when God, when, when Adam and Eve reject that and basically follow the, follow the lie of the devil, we see the curses come in Genesis chapter 3. And if you read through the curses in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that it speaks on these two things. Here God says he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis chapter 3, God says you will still bear children, but it will be painful. And then it says you will have dominion over the fish over the sea. And then in Genesis chapter 3, it says you will still have dominion, but this dominion will be difficult. You will still work the ground, but now it won't just bring forth what it will bring forth very easily. You'll have to work and toil for it. So we see the blessing is, is, is changed to a curse. So the first one we see there is Genesis, uh, um, Adam. The second one is Noah. The, the uh, covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And it starts in Genesis chapter 6 already, and there's a mirror image in Genesis chapter 6 to Genesis chapter 3. If you know the story of Scripture, you will know that um, Genesis chapter 4 speaks about this idea of Adam and Eve, and they had children, and these children already, from the get-go, were poisoned by sin. And the one brother kills the other one, Cain kills his brother Abel. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we see that now suddenly humanity is not in the image of God anymore. It is now not the son, Adam is the son of God, but then everybody becomes the sons of Adam. Then Genesis chapter 6 is almost this story of decreation, of going back to this chaotic state where there's just water over the earth. And then God comes and he, he says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, he says, God bless Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have we heard this before? That's exactly what he said in Genesis. Noah is this new Adam almost in a sense, where God says, now you go and be fruitful and multiply. He uses the same covenantal blessings. And then, and, and then he says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase it greatly on the earth and multiply it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish. And this is the first time in scripture that we read of the covenant. I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Verse 11, he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall, I be, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And now God gives him a specific sign. And this is another important thing, that a covenant has a sign with it to show that you are in a covenantal agreement with this. He says, um, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Do you know what the sign is? The rainbow, right? It says, and I will set my what in the cloud? My bow in the cloud. It doesn't say rainbow. It says what? Bow. Bow. Now, where do you get the idea of bow from? What, what, what comes to mind? Right, a bow and arrow. 
And that's exactly, if you think about a rainbow, it looks like a bow. Now, now in your mind, have a little shelf there, theological shelf, that you will put this word bow, because we're going to come back to this. So I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So today, when we go out, after the rain has fallen, and we see this rainbow, we look at this, and this is a sign of God's grace, sign of God's covenant, that He will not send water over the whole earth again, Right? The next one is the Abrahamic covenant that we find just a few chapters after that. Genesis chapter 12, God calls, Adam, uh, calls Abraham. And then Genesis chapter 15, 16, and 17, he gets into what this means to be called by God. Verse 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go to your country and to your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Who's the one that provides the land? It's God, right? And I will make you. Who's the one that will make him a great nation? It is God. God is saying, I am stepping in. It's divinely initiated. And then he says, I will make myself responsible. I will make the clear way for you. I will show you where the land is. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. You see that word again, blessing. And you will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So what is the, what is the call of Abraham? What is God telling him? Land and descendants. What did he say to, Abraham, to Noah? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What did he say to Abraham, uh, to Adams, excuse me? La land and descendants. Same thing. Can you see how God's plan is always the same? I want to bless these people. But now instead of all of humanity, God chooses just Abraham as a family. Why Abraham? I don't know. Why did he choose these people? I don't know. There's many questions that we don't have answered or that the scripture doesn't answer. But he decided to choose Abraham. And so he chooses Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And so what is important for us to, is to know that the blessings of Abraham is to reveal God's goodness and redemption to those in covenantal relationship with God. The point that God wanted to make is I'm choosing this family and out of this family, the whole world will be blessed. I bless you so that you can be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, he continues, he says, I will bless you, will bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Chapter 15, he says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Remember, I said that a covenant is to cut. Here we see God giving Abraham this vision. And God says, bring all of these animals. And he brings all of these animals. And he cuts them up. And God is the one that moves between them. It's the presence of God. So here we see that God is not telling Abraham to walk through it. But God is the one, the only one that walks through it. So here we see a very important point. God is saying, I am making myself responsible for this covenant. And we later on see when we get to Jesus that that's exactly what God did. But God is not saying, I'm going to do everything. You just sit back and relax, Abraham. Because in chapter 17, God gives him a sign and says, you have something to do as well. You do something that will remind you of this covenant, remind you of this covenantal relationship that we are in. So he makes this covenant and says, to your offspring, I will give this land and from the river um, of Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates. So now here's the sign. Now let's go back to Noah. What was the sign of Noah? The bow. Right, The sign of Abraham is a very gruesome sign. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. And you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So what is the sign? Circumcision. Now, 
you go back to the story, I'm trying to bring all the story strands together. If you go back again, God promises in Genesis chapter 12 to Adam land and descendants. That's the same thing that he says to Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? Uh, have dominion over this earth. That's the same thing that he said to Adam. Now, when he said it originally to Adam, Adam messed up. And in Genesis chapter 3, God speaks to the serpent, he speaks to Adam, and he speaks to Eve. When he speaks to the serpent, he says to the serpent that there will be a specific thing that will come and overcome the serpent. What would that be? It is the seed. We spoke about that. And that seed represents Jesus, eventually down the line, right? But here, to, add it to, to Abraham, he's choosing Ab- Abraham, and he says, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to reveal myself through you in a redemptive way that you're going to experience blessing. And these blessings will flow over to other people. Through your people, I will show the, people, the nations who I am so that I can draw every person into relationship. Now, the sign of that covenant is circumcision. Now, if you think about it, that links back to Genesis chapter 3 where God said a seed will come. Every boy would know we are waiting for the seed to come. Every family would know every time a baby is born, every time that they circumcise the boy, every time that happens, they're saying, is this the seed? Is this the one? Can you imagine the anticipation that happens every time a baby is born? Is this the promised one? Is this the promised one? Is this the promised one? Is it come yet? Is it come yet? Every generation, every baby that is born, that is circumcised, is reminded of the covenant that God has made with that people. And that they are waiting, anticipating the Messiah to come. You shall be circumcised in your flesh on your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. A few years later, so Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son. Jacob had a son. And Jacob had many sons. And these sons become the the 12 sons, become the, the, the nation of Israel. That's the story of Genesis. Exodus is the story where we find Moses um, going to liberate, uh, God calls him to liberate Israel. That's in Egypt, in bondage. He takes them out. And as they go out through the Red Sea, so follow the story here, they, they are the, the chosen people of God. They are in Egypt. From Egypt, they are liberated by God. God is the one that liberates them. As he liberates them, they go through the Red Sea. They're in the desert for how long? 40 years, right? In the desert, God says, I'm making a covenant with my people. They don't know who I am for 400 years. And this was predicted by God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So God is predicting this this, uh, period of, of, of slavery. But then he says, I will come and liberate them. And now he's liberated them. So now he's with them. But he says, but these people don't know who I am. I need to make a covenant because my covenant isn't just merely redemptive, but it is also revelatory. So I need to redeem myself. I need to uh, redeem them, but I also need to reveal myself. So God makes a covenant, and the first point of the covenant is Exodus chapter 19. Know therefore I will indeed obey the voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall, to, shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Once again, what is that word? A kingdom of priests. That theological little uh, shelf that you have in your mind where we put the word bow. I want you to put the word priest, holy priesthood, or kingdom of priests right there as well. So the first word is, what do we put there? Bow. And what's the second word? Kingdom of priests. These are the words that you shall speak for the people of Israel. And then he comes and he gives them a sign, the sign of the Mosaic covenant. It's in Exodus chapter 20, the chapter just after that. He says, and the God spoke all of these things, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments is one of the first 
uh, official uh, covenantal documents, how you would uh, give a covenant if you were the reigning king, was to sign your name first, say who you are, and then the stipulations. It's called the Vassal and Suzerain Treaty. For instance, if a powerful king, say like Nebuchadnezzar, when he overtook Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar would go into Jerusalem and say, I am now the king, right, and you are beneath me, but I, I, we can work together, so I will have a covenant with you, and this is, would be a covenant that he would write down. What God is doing in the Ten Commandments is he is writing a covenantal document written in stone on, 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 on something that cannot be changed, and he starts off and says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. I am your personal savior who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, remember where you were, you were slaves, but I am the one that liberated you out of the house of slavery, which means you don't need to do something to be saved. I have already redeemed you, and because we are in this redeeming relationships that will reveal to you more and more who I am, follow this way. The Torah is instructive for them to become God's people. We use the Torah to say, this is legislative. This is what you need to do in terms of almost, almost as a type of legalism, where for them, Torah was instructive to become God's people. They've already been called, but now they need to be educated. Now they need to be transformed. And one of the key things, the, signs of the, Sabbath, uh, the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath. So it says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or the livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So it's saying here, there is a sign, a weekly thing that you need to do. Now, once again, what does this remind you of, this idea of, uh, of six days you shall work and the seventh day you shall rest? Is that not the Sabbath? Is it not the creation account? Moses actually says this. He says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now if you go back again, I want to ask you the question. The idea there of remember the Sabbath day, why does God say remember the Sabbath day? We generally say, well, because we're going to forget the Sabbath day. Well, wouldn't they forget that they shouldn't worship other gods? There's lots of stories where they worship other pagan gods. Shouldn't God also say, remember that I'm the only God? No, no, the reason is he's not saying remember the Sabbath day only. He says remember why you're keeping the Sabbath. Because for them, they've been in Egypt for 400 years. They know a plethora of other gods that aren't truly gods. And they have these, all, these, all these other stories of creation. And God says, remember something that you have forgotten, that I'm the creator God. Remember, you know that I'm the Savior because you experienced the salvation. You knew how I, I led you out of Egypt, but you have forgotten that I'm the creator God. So when you keep the Sabbath, when it rolls around, it is a, a significant sign weekly to remind you I am your sustainer and your, your creator. Now let me ask you this question. The Ten Commandments was written on what kind of uh, material? Stone. And stone means that it cannot be changed, right? Now imagine you were Moses. So the, stories, the story of the Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, we've covered that. Exodus is the Exodus and the starting of the Levitical system, right? Um, the same with uh, Leviticus and Numbers. But then Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. They wander in the desert for 40 years and then God says that this generation, the first generation that was liberated out of Egypt, will not go into the promised land because they have done great evil. So then God says, but the second generation will go in. And before they go in, I need to educate them. So he says to Moses, give the law to them again. So he gives the law to them again. That's the book Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy literally means the second giving of the law. Deuteros meaning second, nomos meaning law. Now if you were Moses, 
And God said to you, give the law to them again. Would you change anything? Would you change God's law? Specifically the Ten Commandments. Would you change the Ten Commandments, yes or no? No, you would keep it exactly the same. Look at what Moses does in, in Exodus. Uh, Sorry, Exodus, let me just read this verse. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generation as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave Moses, when he finished speaking the, on him, the Mount of Sinai, the two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now in Deuteronomy, the second law, he says this, observe the Sabbath day. This is different than the first one where he says remember. This is observe as in celebrate, like a festival. Observe the Sabbath day, celebrate the Sabbath day, keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And then he kind of goes through the very similar stuff. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son and your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourners within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So he's saying the Sabbath day is the great equalizer. Just like in the first one, the great equalizer, there's no master, there's no servant. Everybody comes together, and it's like a reset of recalibrating our identity, recalibrating where we're from, recalibrating all of these ideas of power and status and, 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 and belonging and identity and all of these things, right? And this is very similar to Exodus. It hasn't changed. But then suddenly we read this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out there from a, from a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Is this different than Exodus? 100%. Now, why is it different than Exodus? Remember, this was written on stone. Why is this different? Why is, why is Moses changing the Ten Commandments here? He's changing it because the first generation experienced the Creator, but didn't know, experienced the Redeemer but didn't know that he was the creator. The second generation experienced him as creator, provider, sustainer. For how many years did they eat of the food that he provided every day? They saw him lead, but they weren't there when they were redeemed out of Egypt. So God says the Sabbath day helps us look back at creation and remind us that we are children of the creator God, but also look at our presence and say that we are also children of the redeemer God. Now, many, 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 many years later after this, the, the author of Hebrews, who wrote the book of Hebrews, we're not exactly sure. Some think it's Paul, others think it's Apollos, we're not exactly sure. But the author of Hebrews writes this, excuse me, writes this, right? He says in Hebrews chapter 4, now this is a longish chapter, and I want you to stick with me here, because this is very, very profound for our understanding of the covenant and why we keep the Sabbath. The author of Hebrews is trying to show that Jesus is better than. If anybody ever asks you, what is the book of Hebrews about? You can just say better. Jesus is better. Better than the temple. Better than the new co He brings a new covenant. He is better. Right? So the author of Hebrews is sketching a picture here of rebellion that happened in the, in the wilderness. And he says, as it, as it is said, today if you hear my voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he says, back in the 40 years of, of wandering, there was rebellion that happened. God promised them a peace and rest, but they kept on rebelling. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not the, all, all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that he, they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about those Israelites that rebelled during the 40 years of wilderness, right? And the rest that he is speaking about is what? The promised land. Going to the promised land and eventually resting from this wandering. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, this is chapter 4 now. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. What does that mean? It means that there is a promise of entering rest that hasn't passed away because Jesus has come. It means that there is a rest still waiting for us. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came forth to us just as to them, meaning the good news of the gospel of who Jesus is, his redemptive power, revealing the relationship that he wants with us, that he wants to bless us, is exactly the same that he gave to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses. It's exactly the same. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they'd heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith by those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I saw in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. So suddenly you're saying, whoa, what are you doing here? Why are you bringing in the Sabbath here? Right? Somewhere he has spoken of the seventh day and said, God rested on the seventh day from, which, from all his works, which is a creation text. And again, this passage he has said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, meaning they broke the covenant, they didn't follow the covenantal uh, um, precepts. Again, he appoints a certain day and says, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken of another day later on. I'm going to pause here. What the author is trying to say is that God is promising rest to them. And some of the Hebrews might say, but yeah, yeah, some of them did get to rest because they went into the promised land and therefore they stopped the wandering, so they must have rest. And he says, no, 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 I'm speaking about a different kind of rest. That was just a typical rest, but there is something beyond that. He says, so then it remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, which, which we have not received yet, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what he's saying here, he's building on three types of levels here. The first one is the archetypal level, which means the rest of the weekly Sabbath. He says, you as Hebrews, you know of the weekly cycle and the weekly Sabbath rest that we receive. For six days, there is a cycle of working, this humdrum of life, Monday and Tuesday, excuse me, and Wednesday and Thursday, just kind of, but then the Sabbath is different. There's a dif different rhythm to the Sabbath. He says, keep that in, in your mind. When God came and they were walking through the wilderness, he was explaining to this, to say, we are in this covenantal re relationship as me as your creator and redeemer and you as my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. And through this, I will remind you of this weekly. If you keep the Sabbath, you will be reminded of that. And that is a promise that you will come to a place where you will rest, where you won't have to wander through the wilderness, right? So the type of rest is the, the rest in the promised land. But the anti-typical rest, the, re the, the true rest that we are waiting for is the rest of the new heavens and the new earth. Let me make it simple for you. God is saying that every week when the Sabbath comes around, when the sun sets on a Friday, it is still 
just normal 60, 60 minutes in an hour, right? It's a normal 24 hours, but yet somehow there's something different than the hour that we spend here, than the hour spent yesterday. It is now exactly 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock today on the Sabbath is different than the 12 o'clock yesterday at Friday. Why? Because it is reminds us, it's a sign of the covenant that when we worship on the Sabbath day, we are saying, God, this, this special day that even you, you're constantly creating, you're constantly still doing something. On Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, God is still operating, God is still doing stuff. He is still creator. We know from science that the universe is still expanding. God is doing stuff that we don't necessarily know what He is doing. But at this very moment, God has ceased from His work to be with you today in this moment. And at the same time, God is saying that the Sabbath day reminds us, it's a sign to look back at creation and say that, God, we know that you're creator. It helps us look at the present and say, God, we know that you are our redeemer. But it makes us look forward to the new heavens and the new earth and say, well, Lord, we know where we are going. We are not completely removed from sin yet. And so we are still somehow in the wilderness. But one day, God, you are coming to redeem us completely, fully. And we will enter into that rest completely. So weekly, we are reminded of not only where we come from, who we are, but also where we are going. The sign of the covenant is revealing to us the work of what God is doing for us, what He has done for us, what He is doing for us, and what He will do for us. And so the sign of the covenant, many people say, well, the Sabbath, um, the Sabbath sign, the covenant sign was just for the Old Testament. No, 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 no. It is for us today. So we are to prepare every day for the Sabbath. And our Sabbath keeping, you want to know what it means to keep the Sabbath? The Sabbath keeping should be to make the Sabbath like the new heavens and the new earth. Where we fellowship together with each other. We fellowship with God. It doesn't have the same humdrum. It, it gets to this idea where God says that everybody should be equal. I don't want to go to the shops. I don't want to make people work. Why? Because I respect them enough in their humanity to say that they should not labor and neither should I labor. We should bring people together closer to God. The Sabbath is supposed to reveal the love of God. The Mosaic Covenant is still important to us. It's still relevant to us. The next covenant is the covenant that God gives. So many years after that, God gives a covenant to David. David is a king close to God's heart, but he is a man of violence. And so he wants to do something for God, build something for God. And God says, no, you will not build my temple. You will not build something where I will dwell, but your son will do this. But then he makes a covenant with David and he says this, when your days are fulfilled and I lie you down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall come from your body and I will establish his Kingdom. Now, this is a dual application. It speaks about Solomon here, but also speaks about Jesus. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you already remember the, 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 the sign that was given to Abraham. What was the sign given to Abraham's covenant? Was circumcision. The seed that will come. Now we know specifically the seed that will come will specifically come through the line of Abraham. Who? I don't know. There's 12 tribes. Which one? I don't know. But now from David, it is very specific. It will come through David's line. So now when you're looking for the Messiah, God is narrowing the view so that you can know exactly where to look for the Messiah to come. In accordance with all of these words, in accordance with the vision, Nathan spoke. Now later on, Jesus comes. The church starts, and then we read of this idea of the new covenant in the book of Hebrews. 
right? So he speaks about the Sabbath. He speaks about all of these things. And what's interesting enough is the quotation in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, is actually a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 33. So the new covenant is not new. It's an old covenant. Covenant already spoken in the Old Testament. This is the covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I, remember, divinely initiated, I will establish a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenants, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So some people read this and say, see, That is the point, that we don't have to keep the Old Covenant. We don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. We don't have to do anything in the Old Testament because God says He will make a new covenant, a covenant that is different. Okay. On first glance, it seems that way, but let's look at the actual covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. What would we call that when we say that God is putting his, his law into our minds? There's a specific theological phrase that we would generally use. Does anybody know what that would be? Right? When God puts his laws in our minds and we kind of just naturally follow and just do this because it's in us. Sanctification. Yes, that's what we would call sanctification, right? I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. With this idea of I will be their God and I will be my pe- I mean, they will be my people, what would we call that idea? This idea that we were rebels, we were transgressors, we had sinned, there is iniquity in us and God is the one that is a grieved party but yet there is this idea where God comes and says, this is my people, this is my God and they come together. What would we call that phrase? Atonement, reconciliation, right? This this coming together, at one right? So we have sanctification, we have atonement or reconciliation, and they will not teach one another his neighbor, each one saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the last of them to the greatest. What does that mean? He's saying nobody will have to teach each other. Why? Because they all know me, meaning that they have seen the revelation themselves. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What is it when God is merciful towards our iniquities? What do we call that phrase when God says, I have forgiven your sins? justification, right? So we have sanctification, we have reconciliation, we have revelation, and we have justification. Those are what we call the DNA markers of the new covenant. The DNA markers of the new covenant. So we have these six covenantal things that all link to each other, but at the end, uh, we get to this new covenant. And many times the new covenant is used as a draw card to say you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. You don't have to keep the Old Testament anymore. You don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore, right? Because there's something new. But let's look at the, the uh, DNA markers of the covenant and see how they are rooted in the old, right? The first one there, sanctification, it says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Leviticus chapter 20, in the Torah, God says this, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Who does the sanctification? Is it not God? Can you see that already in the Old Testament, God's promise was to sanctify us. God wanted to do something else, bring us to become a certain amount of people. Reconciliation. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat all the store, um, old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old and make way for the new. And I will make a dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Where is that found? In the New Testament? No, it's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the Torah. It's found in the Leviticus Mosaic Covenant. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and that you, um, that you shall not be their slaves. I have broken the bars of yoke and make you walk erect. This is God's promise. He says, I want to sanctify you. I want to make you holy. I want to bring you back and restore you to the image of God. I want to reconcile you. I want to reveal myself to you. He says there that nobody, uh, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Once again, Exodus chapter 19. Therefore, I will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me as a kingdom of priests. What is a priest? What is the work of the priest? Is the work of a priest not to mediate and to show people? Right? But essentially, God wants to say that I want the whole kingdom to be priests. So if everybody is a priest, who do you mediate to? Do you think that, do I need to share the gospel with Pastor Andrew or Pastor, uh, Pastor Lyndon? You would imagine that they would know the gospel, right? Our direction is not to share the gospel with them, but to share the gospel outside. So if everybody is a priest, a kingdom of priests, it means that they all know God. God's point was to choose a people that will grow and grow and bring people in. So eventually the whole world will be a kingdom of priests. His whole point of the covenant is to bring people in relationship with him and by revealing his love and mercy through his people, by blessing them because they're obedient to him. That's the point of the covenant. The covenant is always to show the glory of God. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. My God, be gracious to us, says Psalm 67, and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, and that your way may be known on the earth and your saving power amongst all the nations. David is praying this. He says, this is what I know that you want from us, Lord, so that your saving power can be seen by everybody through us. Isaiah 6 says this, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is God's frustration with Jerusalem. This is God's frustration with Israel. Saying that you want to come and give me these empty sacrifices. You want to bring me all of these things. I'm frustrated with them. What I want you to do is show my love to people. That's what I want. That's what God always wanted. He wants Christians to be letters to be sent out into the world to be lights on a city on a hill, to be salt of the earth, because he wants his revelation to be gone out through his people. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Can you see how he's connecting that revelation with covenant? And they dealt faithlessly with me. They dealt faithlessly with me. Justification, this we know well. We spoke about that last week. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. The Lord passed before me, and I, he proclaimed, once again, Exodus, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. The Old Testament God isn't a stern judge. He is a God that says, I have already redeemed you, therefore keep the covenant. I am the God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Right? The word slow to anger is actually a funny thing. In the Hebrew, it means to have a long nose. Right? Because when you're angry, you snort. Right? And he says, Lord, Lord, may you have a long nose so that, that, that you'll be slow to anger, that you won't snort at us and, and, and breathe out fury. And abounding in steadfast love, love that doesn't shake and, and move, and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? He's not a God that just says, ah, okay, it's fine, everything's fine. He knows when bad is bad, and he will keep us account to that. 
But yet the way that he does that is through his grace and his mercy. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God says, I'm, I'm not overlooking sin. I'm not saying our oh, sin is nothing. I'm saying sin is something and it's bad and it will mess you up. And if you don't come and follow this covenant, if you're not in this relationship with me, you're in for a, for, for a surprise on where you're going. You're going to end up very twisted and twisting. But yet there's grace and mercy found in Jesus himself, in the covenant. So how did Jesus fulfill this covenant? Because these are a, a long line of covenants, but how did Jesus fulfill these covenants? Well, if you just look at the story and follow the story of Jesus with me for a moment. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit more in the next few weeks as we go in. But just think about this. Creation, we start with Adam, and there's two sections to the creation, uh, to the um, covenantal story of Adam. It's Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis chapter 3, where Adam receives the blessings, where Adam receives the curses. Now, Jesus, by Paul, is said that Jesus is the new Adam, the second Adam, the one that walks in humanity's uh, path. Now, we went uh, a few weeks ago, we went to the story in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we see the story of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil the same way that Adam and Eve was tempted by, right? The devil came and he wanted to get Jesus to doubt with his head, desire with his heart, and disobey with his hands. He came with the word and brought, de de uh, brought deception to Jesus. He wanted to deceive Jesus. He wanted to doubt, bring doubt to Jesus. How did Jesus fight? Did he not stand where Adam and Eve fell? Right? So Adam, boom, click, right? Then we go to Noah. Remember that little shelf in your mind that I said, remember to put bow there? Have you put it there? Do you know that in the Hebrew, the word is not rainbow, but bow? So imagine in your mind, a rainbow is a bow. Where does the arrows go? The arrows goes up. The idea in, in the Hebrew is that when you read it, is that God is saying that the, that the sin of the world will essentially, all the arrows will shoot up into heaven, into myself. I will absorb the sin of humanity. So the sign of the covenant of you, the, the sinfulness of humanity, is saying that I will take the arrows of sin on myself. We see that in Isaiah 53, where God says that surely we, he, he took the, our grief and our sorrows upon him. If you think about the Abrahamic covenant, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says, this is Jesus the Christ. The word Christ is the anointed one, right? The anointed one, and he says that he is the, the, the son of Abraham and the son of David. So there are both of those covenants where he says that he is the perfect new person that comes as Adam, but he is also the son of Abraham and the son of, of, uh, of David. He is the one that was circumcised on the eighth day. He is the one that is a part of the royal line. He is the perfect one to come. How, how did he fulfill the new covenant? Is he not the one that justifies us? Is it not because of his blood that we are reconciled with God? Is he not the ultimate revelation of God? Is he not the one that brings us closer to God? and reveals God who He truly is, and sanctifies us. Can you see that all these covenants converge on Jesus Christ Himself? We are called there, if you remember the other shelf, on the Mosaic covenant and says that we should be a priest, a, ki a kingdom of priests. Jesus comes as Jesus the Christ. The word Christ, I've spoken to this at this church before, but the word Christ is the word to anoint. In the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet. He comes from God to his people. That's what a prophet did. A prophet was a mediator between God and his people, bringing the word of God. Jesus doesn't merely bring the word of God. He is the word of God. He comes as the high priest, as Hebrews says, and he comes and he steps once again as a mediator between God and the people. But now he doesn't come from God. He comes from humanity saying, I know of their weaknesses. I know of their vulnerabilities. I know who they are, and I step in their stead. I mediate for them. I am the bridge between humanity and divinity. I bring them together. 
And then later on in the church, Paul, Peter says to us that you're a kingdom of priests. Why are we a kingdom of priests? Because of what Jesus has done. Can you see the covenants all work together? It's constantly God drawing us, redeeming us, revealing himself in order to have relationship with us. And he says, if you are in relationship with me, you will do these things that I set forth for you. Not because they're arbitrary rules, and I just want to see how, you, how many hoops you can jump through just because I want you to entertain me. No, no, no. God is saying, I'm putting these things because I love you, because I care for you, because I created you this way. And if you follow these things, if you do these things, you will live a life of flourishing. You will be sanctified and reconciled. You will live a life that will be a revelation to the world of my gospel, of my peace, of who I am. Can you see, God, that God's purpose through His covenant was not only to reveal God to you, but to reveal God through you. And it all revolves and all converge and comes together with Jesus. He is the fulcrum that everything pivots on. He is the covenant embodied. And so when we worship Him, we are worship not only a God or the God. We are worshiping the God that was made flesh and in Himself saw that humanity was not going to cut the mustard. He, he knew that we would never be able to live up to the standards because we are broken. And He says, but I will come and I will stand in their stead. But now I will also help them in the journey. That's the beautiful thing. God doesn't merely save us from something, but to something, to become like Him, to become covenant keepers ourselves. What a beautiful privilege. I want to ask the worship band to come up because we have a, a really profound song that I want us to sing now. And I'll read you some of the, some of the, the verses, uh, verses as they come up. This, the song is called The Goodness of Jesus. And there's a phrase in the song that says, Come find what this world cannot offer. Come find your joy here complete. Taste the living water. Never thirst again. Rest here in his wonderful, wondrous peace. Oh, the goodness, oh, the goodness of Jesus. Satisfied, he is all that I need. May it be, come what may, that I rest in all my days in the goodness of Jesus. When we look at the story of the covenant, when we look at the big story of Scripture, we cannot but every single time come to the conclusion that it's all about Jesus. That when you go to creation, He is the one that created us. When you go to crisis, He is the one that's the seed that will redeem us. When you go to covenant, you will know that He is the one that is the true covenantal keeping human being. But through extension, He wants to recreate us. He wants to save us from creation. And He wants to make us covenant keepers as well. He is calling you to great privilege. He's calling you to great, great power. He's calling you to be a revelation of God to this world. And He says, I know that you can do it. Through my power in you, I'm calling you to greatness in this world. Not greatness according to the world, but greatness in this world in terms to serve and to love in terms of to be a revelation of the kingdom of God. The goodness of God is pursuing you. And as we sing this song, I want you to, to say, Lord, I want to choose you today. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to, I want to experience that goodness. And just like last week as we made this, I'm going to say to you again, don't, don't be like in that verse in Hebrews where it says, you know, today you have heard it, but I've turned a, a deaf ear. I did not listen at this moment when the Spirit is speaking to you, as the Spirit draws you to say, yes, Lord, 
I want to follow you. For some of you, it might be rededication to say, Lord, I'm going to dedicate my heart to you again. I've done this last week. I did it the week before. I'll do it every single day for the rest of my life. For some of you, it might be the first time that you dedicate yourself to God. Some of you might say, I'm ready to dedicate myself, but I need some studies. I want to be baptized, but I, I, I just don't know enough yet to know what I'm getting myself into. Come and speak to me afterwards. But as we sing this song, as you feel the Spirit drawing you, don't just, don't just, don't just uh, let it be. Res- r- r- surrender and listen to the Spirit as we speak. Let's sing this song together.